and welcome to The Bunker. My name is Marie LeConte and I hate Elon Musk. I hate him so much I could spend the rest of this podcast going on about how much I hate him. Don't worry, I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm joined today by Max Tafkin, a tech reporter at Bloomberg and panellist on Elon Inc., a podcast which does what it says on the tin. As much as I enjoy whinging and whining about the many ways in which Elon has ruined Twitter, I thought it'd be more interesting to chat to Max about the more general car crash that is Musk life at the moment. Hi, Max. Hey, how's it going, Marie? So at what point did you guys decide to launch a podcast specifically about Elon Musk? Like, When did you realise there was probably enough material to talk about him every single week? Well, I mean, this is something that we, you know, internally at Bloomberg have been talking about for, you know, most of the last year. Um, and you know, personally, uh, as somebody who's like covered tech for um, a really long time, you know, since around 2005, um, the idea of like focusing in a detailed way on on Musk and his kind of business empire and the ways in which that that empire kind of collides with culture and politics and so on. I mean, that's something that has kind of been front of mind for me for really about a decade. Obviously, he's he's now the world's richest man. He's also, in certain ways, you know, a celebrity. He's like a weird combination of Taylor Swift and Warren Buffett, right? When you <laughs> think about how you want to model him. And he's red-pilled. He's, you know, he's constantly tweeting or Xing or whatever, these like kind of crazy, half-cocked right-wing theories. He owns this massive platform. He owns one of the big car companies. He owns a major defense contractor. And the thing that's really interesting, I think, and important here is that these things are all kind of intertwined. Like this is not a conventional business empire where you have like, you know, Tesla, which is a company and SpaceX is a company, right? They're, they're, mm. they're sharing resources. They're all kind of connected. Elon Musk is like his own conglomerate. And like, that's the way that I think it, it's, it's a way that's helpful to think about him. It's, it's, it's the way I think his fans think about him, but also probably if you're trying to be critical and you're trying to understand um, the risks posed by various, you know, companies or or, or brushes with the law or whatever. Um, thinking about them as one thing is really important. Mm. And so, at, at what point did he become that kind of person? Because I feel like, you know, as someone who doesn't really write about tech, I'd always been aware of Elon Musk, kind of, you know, in the background, kind of doing his thing. But for me personally, I think it's just since he decided to take over Twitter, I was like, oh my god, suddenly my entire life has become Elon Musk. Like whether I want it or not, to be clear, and I don't really want it to be. Um, so that, at what point do you think he became, as you said, this kind of like one man conglomerate? Like, is it that he'd been there for quite a long time, but people only kind of realized recently, or did something shift in the last kind of year or couple of years? Well, I think because like some of this stuff has been there from you know the late '90s when when Musk. Uh, was first starting companies. And some of it is much newer. This sense of like cultural omnipresence, the trolling, he has broadcast conspiracy theories about the Speaker of the House of the United States, Nancy Pelosi's husband, uh, you know, um, has retweeted or amplified um, anti-Semitic jokes, is like regularly talking with um, some very, very edgy people on the right. That all is pretty new. I mean, that all I think is kind of a post-COVID phenomenon with Musk, um, the kind of trolling right-wing persona. But the the idea of him as like a powerful person with a big following and a lot of money, um, that's been building over over two decades, you know, really since I, I first interviewed him in like 2006. And like he was even then, you know, running SpaceX and running Tesla and cracking uh, or trying to crack jokes 
and um, you know was pugnacious and all those things. Like they were always there, but it, but it's become um, heightened. He. This is an industry that had an insurgent quality. Like these were not the people running things. And now, of course, Elon Musk is is the world's richest person. So like certain aspects of his personality, which I think maybe were less problematic in a guy who's like doesn't have a substantial market share in missiles, um, is now he's bigger time and he's still kind of operating in this really chaotic, critics would say probably like, you know, unchecked way. And so like, how are things going with Elon Musk at the moment? So kind of over the past few weeks and months, um, you know, what's up with his businesses and, you know, what's been going on? He's, he's been sort of all over the place. Um, there is what is happening in his business empire. And there, I think like it's, it's a mixed bag. So the Twitter acquisition, you know, since renamed X has been pretty disastrous, uh, disastrous from a, a financial standpoint, disastrous from like a brand standpoint for Elon Musk. He's telling a story, right? Where like X is the thing to cure the woke mind virus. But you kind of get the sense that like if he could go back and again, this is this is me reading into like public statements, right? He he may he might he might regret this. Um, Tesla and SpaceX, I think it's a more complicated story, right? Tesla's stock has has not been great over the past year. It's roughly flat. The stock has gone down over the last couple of days, uh, you know, taping this on on, on Friday, November 10th. Right. It, it dropped. But, you know, when you take a few steps back, I mean, he's been tremendously successful. Tesla is worth around $700 billion. Um, SpaceX is like the major launch vehicle for astronauts in the United States, right? So he's had a lot of things go well. I think what where, where things have feel less stable and where he's maybe under threat is the fact that he's maybe starting to, to run up against the limits of everything that he promised, right? Like Tesla will not be a growth company forever. There's also, of course, threats of of regulation. Um, you know, he's in this like long running battle with the Securities and Exchange Commission in the United States. There are disputes with the highway regulators over over Tesla's autopilot. There are lawsuits. There's kind of a swirl of crap um, that, in certain ways, threatens him. On the other hand, he has such a strong and entrenched position, both in terms of money and in terms of like fandom, that that I don't I don't think he's like under any kind of immediate threat. It does kind of feel at the moment that he is making these kind of like insane big promises, like in in kind of every area of business he has. You know, Twitter will become the was it like the everything app? So it'll become somehow like a bank, but also a dating app, and also you know whatever else. Then you've got Tesla building the really really weird looking car that kind of looks like a you know car in an old video game, and that's meant to be was it someone shot it with a crossbow recently? I think to prove it was crossbow resistant. As that oh well you know I'll sleep soundly knowing my car is crossbow resistant. It's bulletproof too. Don't forget. <laughs> no, I don't. Yeah, I don't care. It's just crossbows. My enemies tend to be more like crossbow bays. Um, you know, and SpaceX, obviously, he's like, we're going to live on Mars. We're going to send people on Mars, etc. Like, is that, it, has he always kind of been like that? Or does it, does it perhaps feel like, you know, he, he is starting to kind of, yeah, just wildly overpromise across the board? Well, no. I mean, he's always been an overpromiser. It's like, if you had to like come up with his formula for success, like overpromising is like definitely part of it. And he's very good at like, selling those promises. And and like my sort of like mental model on him for a really long time has been that he's sort of overrated as like a technologist and a, as like an inventor. You know, he likes to style himself as like a Steve Jobs, like somebody who like dreams up new technologies. Um he's doing that to some extent, but what he's really really good at, really good at is marketing and and like selling those promises to Wall Street 
to the U.S. government and to some extent to, to the American public. And, you know, for, for the longest time, people talk about like the, the, the sort of long running like zero interest rate phenomenon, right, where we're basically a venture capitalists and financiers putting money into all kinds of crap that like just had no payoff. And Musk really, really benefited from that for, for the longest time. And even to some extent to this day, he has basically been able to get like unlimited amounts of money from the public markets, like at will. And when you look at like Tesla's stock price relative to the number of cars they sell, like it's a way, 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 way more expensive stock than like Toyota. Toyota sells a lot more cars than Tesla and it's worth a lot less money than Tesla. You know, Ford and GM are worth like a tiny, tiny fraction of Tesla. And that's because Elon Musk has been able to sell investors and the public. And to some extent, I think people who are buying these cars on the idea that in the future, they will be able to drive themselves. You know, we're no longer going to own individual cars and, and, and your Tesla is going to be out driving around while you're sleeping, making money for you. And, and like none of that has happened. And I think the real like the long term question with Elon is, is always like, at what point does the spell wear off? And it hasn't happened yet. Um, but of course, you know, it probably will because like that's how business works. Like no, no company grows forever. And, and when that happens, that will be very painful and very dramatic. And I think if you're a Tesla critic, what you would say is like, it's already happening. You know, first time I met him, right? He talked about making life multiplanetary and, and stopping climate change, right? And he's like very consistently um, talked about that for the last... 20 years. But then very recently, he added a new, you know, arrow to the quiver, so to speak, which is this thing called the woke mind virus, which like has absolutely nothing to do with the other two, unless you really twist into some some like really crazy knots, which and the crazy knots are like, take it or leave it. But like, if the woke mind, if these like liberals are ascendant politically, then somehow we won't be able, innovators will not be able to work. And it, it really kind of like strains credulity. It, it feels like the kind of thing that was sort of drummed up to give like a grand societal purchase to a money losing social media company, Twitter. It does feel like, you know, a problem. And like, at some, again, at some point, if he can't cash the checks, like if he's not able to, you know, deliver at least a piece of the crazy things he's promising, the, you know, the fan base may may become less enthusiastic. Looking at Twitter specifically, so I just refuse to call it X, um, you know, and as someone, you know, who's been a very heavy user for a very long time, I, I do think it's kind of over the past kind of couple of months, it has got worse and worse and worse. And that noticeably as well, I think so many power users, I hate that phrase, but, you know, power users have left entirely or just don't really post anymore. I found that, you know, the amount of trolling I get is a lot worse than it used to be. So what would happen to the kind of Musk empire if Twitter kind of just died a death? What would that do to him? Well, I think to some extent it's, it's happening. Um, uh, and it's funny you talk about Twitter versus X. You know, Musk himself, one of, unfortunately or fortunately, you know, one of my jobs, right? <laughs> it's like I'm working on this Elon podcast uh, that we launched is like listening to all his interviews. And, you know, I listened to him on Joe Rogan. And even he was was repeatedly calling it Twitter, right? He kept saying X, FKA Twitter, like reminding people, hey, X is also Twitter. Because even if you work there, right, it's you're still calling it Twitter. So I think the thing that's been so bad for Twitter under Elon Musk, and that we didn't totally understand, I don't think, until he took it over, was that what Twitter was, like there was a technology company here 
but it was really like a community. You go back to the Arab Spring and you think about when there were um, sort of revolutions, people on the streets protesting. You had this very robust community of, of reporters and sort of citizen journalists filtering through the nonsense, essentially like, and many of these people were subject matter experts. Many of them were based in the countries and they were saying, okay, this is fake. This is real. And those people are the horrible blue checks that Elon Musk, you know, hates so much. A lot of them have left the platform. A lot of them aren't there anymore uh, because no one's seeing their tweets. And like, that is a huge loss and just a huge unforced error. Now we have a war in Israel and Gaza an endless stream of misinformation. It's almost impossible to tell what's real and what's not. It's it's bad for for us. It's bad for us as journalists. It's bad for for anyone who uses Twitter. Of course, it's also bad for Elon Musk because Elon Musk seems to get a lot of his information from Twitter. And and when you think about like, well, gee, what what has happened to this guy? Like, how did he go from somebody like this, like deep intellectual, to to somebody who kind of rails like a a grandpa about like you know kids these days. Um, and I think some of it has to do, it's like the same thing that happens to a lot of people get sucked into social media, right? Your your universe narrows, you spend all your time like raging about woke things or or, or whatever, and you just kind of like start to detach from what really matters and you become obsessed with culture wars and so on. And I'm afraid to some extent that has that has happened to Elon Musk. Maybe this is just a phase or something, but but it definitely seems like not long-term great if you're trying to run like a big car company or a big uh, defense contractor or whatever. Mm. Um, and just wanted to pick up on one thing. So I think there's been several media reports now on his drug use. Um, so apparently microdosing ketamine or smoking weed, etc. So what, what do you make of that? Look, I don't know. I haven't interviewed Elon's ketamine dealer. Uh, <laughs> but but I think just just stepping back, right, there's the question of okay, like he smoked weed on the Joe Rogan podcast and mm. and there are like these kind of vaguely sourced reports in, in some really good publications about, about ketamine usage. You know, does that add up to like somebody who's got a drug problem? I think, I think super hard to say. Um, what I will say though, is if you read the Walter Isaacson book, the thing, I mean, it's very puffy. Um, it's very much the book that Elon Musk, you know, wanted him to write um, mm. for better or worse. There are a lot of comments, you know, and, and the main source is Elon Musk. And then there are like a couple other sources, like one of whom, it, like one of whom is Elon's brother. The other one is Elon's best friend. And when you look at the, what they're saying, they are painting a picture of a guy who has serious mental, mental health challenges, right? Who, who deals with, you know, deep bouts of depression, who behaves erratically. And, and again, these are his best friends, his brother, these are people who love him the most in the world, right? There's this, yeah. my, my, my favorite part of the Isaacson book is like, you know, at one point, I think it's, I think it was Elon Musk's brother, you know, tried to like lock his phone in a hotel safe because he doesn't want him to tweet, you know, they've built up these like, you know, kind of complicated bits of scaffolding to manage the mood swings of, of this person. And so to me, like those questions are probably more important than the question of drug use. And of course, it's all kind of connected. Yeah. Um, and so like you also wrote a biography of Peter Thiel. Um, and so kind of looking at Elon's again, quite, you know, and I don't even know if you can call them reactionary politics. I'm not sure they kind of make sense uh, enough to kind of, you know, be called one thing or another. But so to what extent do you think Elon was actually kind of shaped by the Silicon Valley kind of like tech bro scene? Like to, to what extent is he just a product of his environment? 
Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I, like you said, I wrote a book about Peter Thiel. It's called Contrarian. Thiel is, I'd say, like a more conventional, ideologically, like more like a normal right winger. You know, he's had an, a, a tremendous influence on Silicon Valley. And I think he's had an influence on Elon's uh, rightward turn. Uh, Elon and Peter Thiel have historically had like kind of an uneasy, they're, they're, they've sort of like frenemies, but they've become closer politically. Musk was oriented basically with the left. With the He was kind of like a center left tech guy, right? In the 2010s. Like he was selling green technology. He was friends with Obama um, and, and so on. And he has now, he has since, you know, obviously rejected all that. And to the extent that's like, kind of alarming, I think, for for people who bought into the old version of Elon Musk, people who bought a Tesla because they care about climate change. Like now you have Elon talking, uh, he's not quite going to the like, full climate change denier route, which is like what Teal would do, but but he is sort of saying things that like like climate change isn't that big a problem and, and, and kind of trying to create space for climate change deniers or climate change skeptics or whatever. What's kind of weird and and potentially concerning, like if you're trying, if you care about these companies or whatever, is it almost feels like he's gotten politically wrong footed, right? In in other eras, he sort of he would tack to wherever kind of the popular consensus was. During the Biden era, uh, rather than embracing Biden, right, he's he's gone like full MAGA, and I think that'll continue um, either because he's seeing this like very right wing thing in his Twitter feed or because he's maybe being a little strategic trying to like cozy up to Donald Trump. Mm. Um, and so that, and I, I'm completely aware this is an impossible question and I'm very sorry to be asking it, but what, what next for Elon Musk? Like, could you, I mean, I, I realize you don't have a crystal ball and he is incredibly unpredictable, but, you know, looking forward to, you know, maybe six months time or in a year's time, like what, what do you think, you know, Elon kind of has, has in mind for the future or like where he might be in, yeah, like six months or a year? Well, you mentioned the Cybertruck. That's the crazy looking truck that can stop the arrows. Um, they're going to begin delivering trucks sometime this year. It's like super unclear, like how many of them they can make, like how real is this product yet? But I do think that that like th- this pickup truck will be a real test for Tesla, for Elon Musk. You know, in the US, pickup trucks are like the num- the big car, right? Like having the best selling car doesn't really mean anything. You want to have the best selling small truck. And so if he's somehow able to convince people to buy this like wacky looking retro futuristic thing that looks like a DeLorean crossed with like a Ford F-150, you know, I think that'll open up just like, like, you know, maybe we'll see Elon climb to another level. I also think it's very possible that like this thing will either fall flat or prove to be not a great business. And like that'll create real, real challenges for for him. You know, we've also seen him trying to launch like AI stuff. He's he's got all these other companies. Uh, most recently, this thing called X.AI. They, they launched a it's an anti woke chatbot. If you're, do you think the big problem with OpenAI is not that it makes stuff up or that it is questionable or doesn't have a business? The big problem is that like it it, it won't be racist enough or something. Then um, has Elon Musk got a product for you? Um, and so, uh, so I don't know. I mean, I think, I think like he's going to continue to be this larger than life figure. I think he's going to continue to have enormous influence over all these industries. Stuff I'm watching besides the cyber truck is like, at what point does he ever just decide to pull the plug on Twitter? Could, could he decide it's not worth it? You know, at some point these promises for essentially almost a decade, he's basically said that Tesla's 
will be able to drive themselves like any day now. And like the any day isn't here. Uh, it hasn't come. Does that start to chip away at like at the influence or the power or whatever? My feeling is that, you know, partly because of his net worth and partly because it's all kind of working so far, he hasn't been into enough threat to like actually change anything. But that he might if, for instance, the Cybertruck falls flat or if he really has to just like pull the plug on Twitter and, and say, you know what, uh, the woke my virus might not be one of the big problems that we have to worry about or whatever. Um, I think, you know, Joe Biden's reelection, if that were to happen, I think that could affect that. Right. Like he's really bet on on the right coming back to power. If the right fails to come back to power, you know, they had a bad election earlier this week, you know, with the, the abortion amendment in Ohio and so on. Like if, if, if Biden does well, if the Democrats do well, maybe that pushes him over the edge. Now, if all those bad things happen and he doesn't react, then like we've got like a Howard Hughes situation. You know, we've got a we've got a great man who is being consumed by, I don't know, his demons or his ego or whatever. But I think it's too early to know, you know, which of those outcomes is most likely. But I feel like those are the stakes. Cool. I'm preemptively exhausted. Um, cool. This was really interesting. Thank you so much, Max. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive merchandise offers. I'm Marie LeConte, and you are listening to The Bunker. The Bunker was written and presented by Marie LeConte. The audio production from me, Robin Lieber. The producer is Liam Tate. Music by Kenny Dickinson. And art by Jim Parrott. Managing editor is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>